Welcome to the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo Radio. We're going to have to clap for ourselves yes. this morning. We've had a bunch of no shows on our guest list. So we're here kind of, uh, we have one delicious audience member uh, who's going to show up later in the show. But uh, we're going to have fun either way today. My name is Tom Douglas. And mine is Thierry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And uh, chef, you know, tomorrow I'm doing a burger pop-up at our dock in Ballard. Yes. So all day long I'll be out there cooking delicious burgers on the wood-fired grill. I'm looking forward to that. And then Saturday I'm going to be at the Maiden Washington in the Pike Place Market from 11, that's right, that's right. 11.30 until 2.30, I believe. Yeah. Doing some uh, all-star rub pop-ups and some salmon rub pop-ups for them. You know, uh, we are their featured producer of the month. We're joined today by Pam Hinckley, our producer, Sean, our technical director, and we're excited to be here. We have a very large show. By the way, I own a few places around town, including Serious Pie out at the To Go, out at the warehouse in Ballard, and um, Carlisle Room. You know, it was such a big week this last week with Brandy being at the Gorge with all of her friends. Oh, yeah. The Carlisle was popping. Pal's Kitchen is now open eight weeks. Uh, we're thrilled uh, for Rocking that. it. Rocking it. And then... Uh, uh, now is the time for the Pike Place Market, man. The tourism oh, yeah. crazy down at SeaTown and that is so awesome. Big show, Washington strawberries. I had my first batch. Delicious. So fragrant, so lovely. You brought some for us this morning, Pam. Uh, so we're going to discuss all the different varieties of strawberries and these ones that you've put some balsamic vinegar on here yes. today. Yeah, what a what a tasty treat. Executive Director of the Backpack Brigade joins us to talk about their program. I thought it was Mariella here today. She's here, too. She's here. She's here. She's the hardworking board member. There you go, Mariella. Looking forward to hearing about uh, that and participating in some fun activity after the show. Commemorating Juneteenth with foods of brilliant red hue. Pam and Terry and I shared a supper last night, a Juneteenth supper. Super fun. Yep. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Don't act so surprised. Well, I'm, I'm saying actually, as in it was really good. Pamela's husband is going to make a rare appearance. Of course, he's got Pike and Western Wine Shop there in the market, and he's going to come in and tell us about the 2022 rosés. You know, it's a little bit like, you remember, Terry, when we first started in this business, more than rosé, Beaujolais Nouveau was the hot ticket, oh, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, Every yeah. November, right? Yep. Now it seems like rosé has taken over that Whoa. mantle, and everyone's waiting for the fresh yeah. new rosés. And uh, I happen to buy uh, six bottles of a 2021 rosé because uh-huh. I don't mind them with a little bit of age on them. Oh. Some of them um, definitely improve with a little age. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, absolutely. And uh, we have a surprise guest today. Anne Van Linsiel, uh is here to talk about uh, her savory, savor your chocolate cookbook, and of course uh, some of the. Issues going on in the world of chocolate from the Big Island of Hawaii. So we're excited about that. And our taste of the week is coming for mine is going to come from dinner last night, which was, I don't think often about serving beans in summertime. I know there's typical barbecue food in some ways, but I just don't make them very much. And I thought the beans last night at our dinner were quite spectacular. We had yep. red beans. Coming from you, that is a high compliment. Yeah, yeah, I'm, that not, is I'm the, not a bean guy, right? I have never right? heard him say yeah. anything I have never beans. heard him compliment the beans. I mean, next he's going to talk about beets. <laughs> well, I love, I love green beans. Yes. And I love fava beans. Yes. So, I, uh, you know... Just You're not saying. a big dry bean guy. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I thought our beans last night were really showed well. We had both the pigeon peas or the black-eyed peas uh, that were stewed to a place. You know, one of the good things about these last night, Chef, was they what? They were cooked They were the cooked. Way. 
Somebody, yeah. somebody. Uh, they were not crunchy. They were cooked. Yeah, a lot of fancy chefs think that it's super cool to do al dente dried beans. And yeah, it's back not, off. Not let them cook. Not that cool. Let no. them cook a little bit longer. So we had some uh, red beans with pork chunks in it, and uh, they were awfully tasty, and some uh, black-eyed peas. That's which, why those were so delicious. Yeah. There was pork in there. <laughs> You didn't realize uh, that? There was a nice piece of bacon in there. I never really have black eyed peas outside of New Year's Eve, right? So, oh, with the ham hock, yeah. Yeah, so, but those, they, those were stewed and delicious also. Yeah, no, they so. were really good. I was yeah. proud, uh, proud to be part of that dinner. You know, I'm on a, uh, a committee with a guy, his name is Craig Dawson, and, uh, who happens to be black, and yep. we're on a, a diversity committee. We're trying yep. to increase the membership at our golf club uh, of black membership, and... So we decided to do this dinner, and we couldn't get any uh, chef in town to come, uh, one of the black chefs in town to come join us for the night because, you know, schedules or whatever yeah, yeah, reasons. Yeah. And so Craig asked me to write the menu. I said, no way. You're <laughs> writing the menu, dude. Exactly. And, uh, Honor yeah. the origins. <laughs> yeah. And so he wrote the menu, and I thought, God, this is such a typical kind of cliche black menu. And then when I did more research, uh, Juneteenth suppers are typically a southern black menu. So yeah. we had cornbread and ribs and baked fish. Collard green. Collard green. It was delicious too. Fried chicken and uh, pecan pie, sweet potato yeah. pie, all sorts of uh, deliciousness. And we had a, a good old time. And even Pam Hinckley went. Yes, I did. And and she ate. I was next to her. She ate. And she ate. (laughs) The whole thing. God, I thought an awful lot. Didn't you think, Chef? Oh, yeah. I wasn't going to say that. I really like the cornbread and grits. I was going to say that on the radio. Oh, grits, yeah. Okay, Chef, your taste of the week. Well, my taste of the week is a a surprise uh, visit to a place called Burger Master. (laughs) Oh, boy. My head is exploding. I had had a hamburger at Burger Master, and I was thinking about you, Tom, because I'm like, Tom needs to see this. I'm eating at Burger Master. Which you think I, I haven't seen the Burger Master burger? No, you have seen Burger Master, but you haven't seen me there because oh, I don't, that's I for sure. Go there. Yeah, it was okay. It was it was okay. I was uh, I was a little bit underwhelmed, but um, I understand why I don't really normally go to. So you were, your and, taste of the week is you were <laughs> underwhelmed, Thanks. and well, you I, understand I, why I don't go to Burger Master. I really wanted to be. I wanted to be more happy than I was when I left. The 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 fries were not that that great and. Was there anything positive you could tell us about the yes. Burger Master? Yes, the fact that you stay in your car and they bring you a tray. That's very cool. <laughs> I love that. That's really cool. The food was okay, but it, it needs, it needs so, more help. So when you go into a place like that, don't you feel like you need to kind of check your attitude at the door a bit? You were going there because you've been driving. You said your wife has been driving by it for 20 years, right? Yeah. And I have a vanilla check, and, yeah. and I was like, sure, But don't you need to kind of check your... I went in... I went what in, about the price point? Was it uh, fair for the price point? You know, unfortunately, I'm one of those guys who... I love food so much that the price is never... Unless it's really expensive and worth nothing, then I, then I start complaining. But I, that's not how I look at things. I look at things much more on the value of how good the food is to me, how, you know, how great the food is. And, and it was good. Anyway... To say something was, I ate my burger and it was okay. Wow. Underwhelming, chef. All right. There we go. Let's just try and take this to the next level. Hooray for Washington Strawberry. Coming up next on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show 97. Look at the bacon. Get yourself that double Forever. 
All right, we're back here in the kitchen at the hot stove at the beautiful Hotel Andra in downtown Seattle. Uh, it's exciting to have Washington strawberry season upon us. So exciting. Oh, I had my first ones. Um, you know, I was up at uh, the, the local grocery by me, a Shoreline Central Market. It's now mm-hmm. the Shoreline Town and Country, I want to say. And uh, they had the table with the boxes, like the half flat of strawberries, and they were big. They looked like California strawberries. Uh-huh. I looked at them. They're local, Skagit Valley. I said, this is not what I think of when I think right. of a Washington strawberry. And so then just maybe three feet away, I saw these little pints of strawberries, just single pints. And the berries were the size, That's you know, instead size. of being the size of a 50-cent piece, they were the size of a uh, quarter, right. we'll say. And they were that dark red. And I picked them up to smell them, and they were luscious smelling. And so I bought two pints of those, and I had them at the farm. So delicious. So delicious. Yes, yeah, And I was trying is... to think of the fragrance that I got off of it because it was perfume of some sort. And I couldn't... I couldn't it's like... called strawberry. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe so. Maybe, yeah. maybe so that you just don't recognize well, but you don't a because... real strawberry anymore. Because... Yeah, because 99% of the year, the strawberry smells like nothing. When was the last time you walked in front of the strawberry stand when there is a pile of them and it doesn't smell like anything because yeah. they don't have the inside. It's not even ripe yet. Yeah. You know, that's what we get most of the time. We have been, uh, we bastardize strawberries so badly, but then when you get a good one, you're like, oh my God, this is what it tastes like. This is why they became popular. Yes, <laughs> that's why they became popular, and that's why everybody wants, and by the way, they're really good for you. I mean, they, do you know that they have more vitamin C than oranges? Did you know that? Oh, you're giving away one of the trivia questions. Oh. <laughs> well, we'll see if anybody Okay, remembers. I got a point. I got a point already. Yeah. Pamela, tell us what you know and researched about strawberries. I would like to read this bit because it was new information to me. Oh. Uh, Washington is home primarily to two types of berries, the day-neutral strawberry and the June-bearing strawberry. Day-neutrals were designed to produce continuously spring through fall regardless of how much sun they get. That's what I think I have in my front yard. That's the, the day pee. neutral. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, um, what we have before us is the June bearing cultivar, and uh, the common ones are Hood, Tillamook, Totem, and Rainier, and they just produce one large crop each year in late spring and early summer. As a result, they are known to be especially aromatic and flavorful. Uh, June bearers also tend to have that more intense internal color right. that we love, um, which makes them great for freezing, jams, and preserving. So um, today in front of you, um, with the June bearing, I tried a more uh, savory approach because, you know, with uh, so many of our ingredients... We like to do the sweet and savory sure, side. Sure. And uh, it's often recommended that you put the saba, the reduced grape must balsamic-esque right. sauce on them to have the counterpoint uh, to the sweetness, but then also bump up the acidity. What do you think of the taste? Wonderful. Tastes like a strawberry, but I think we're gonna get, it's going to get even better as it ripens for the season. Yeah, I think for the, I mean, it's a short season. It's a two, three-week season. You know, it's not, and it's another thing people need to remember. As soon as they come out, you buy them, you let them ripen a, maybe a day, and then put some sugar on it, and then put them in your freezer and do some freezer jam or, or can them or do your jam. But you don't have much time. You have two, three weeks to just do the whole season of the local strawberry, and then after that, it's done. So buy your couple of flats now and... Get them out of the way. 
do whatever you need to do. Pureed, uh, can, fro uh, freezer. Those are great ideas to you know put them or away. just eat them like crazy. Well, eat them and then wait, the wait until time. next year. At the same time, eat yeah. them like crazy, you know. Yeah. But but it's so delicious. Then you want to keep a couple bags in the freezer. So, I mean, eating your cereal in a couple months from now with just putting a few strawberries on there that kind of you know that are thought out. Mm, that flavor is so. Now that's delicious. interesting, Chef, because uh, I can't do it. Why? Well, I, when they thaw, they get all mushy and, and gross, and it's just the texture I can't live with. Now, I can definitely live with freezer jam, right. or I can put them in a, in a blender and make a smoothie out of them. Right. But just to have a thawed strawberry for me is it's like that. No, even if you IQF them. Yeah, I mean, it's... Even if you IQF them, they, they, well, they, you know, they uh, collapse, cr collapse on themselves. Yeah. And I find that texture... And, and, you know, I'm a mochi guy, and I like... I know. Right? So, you that's like funny. It, it's yeah. good if Tough you things. take a little honey, toasted almond... Mix that with the strawberries and put that on your, you know, rolled oats or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's a good, to me, I think it's a good breakfast item. What I like about that is that it's a true flavored strawberry. Yes, that is, is spectacular. Which is what I like about that, you know, even thought out. I mean, it tastes still very good, so. I want to go back one second, Pam. You put in what you called saba, and a lot of people don't know that condiment because they're so used to buying balsamic, which is the same thing but aged in oak barrels. Whereas Saba, it's just that fresh grape must, must reduced. Yeah. And it's a little bit like a sugar substitute with a roundness in flavor. And you'll find it's fairly expensive in the grocery store, but it's, you use very little and it's totally worth it. It's a good fun, totally worth it. Good fun uh, condiment got, to have. I around. got an inexpensive way to make something similar to that, which is take, go to Costco and buy a, a gallon of balsamic vinegar, take half of it and mix it with honey or sugar and make a caramel. And that oh, can stay on your counter for six yes. months. And every day you just take a spoon of that and put it on your cereal, again, back to the cereal, or on your salad, or on your chicken, or on your fish. Your own sexy homemade saba. Well, I'm not, doing if that. If you're using balsamic, it's, it's not saba. No, it's There's not going to be saba. It's going to be similar to saba in terms of that sweet and sour kind of flavor yes. on your counter and very unctuous. But it That's goes, the word we were looking for. Unctuous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My dad loved a bowl of vanilla ice cream with strawberries on top. He didn't love strawberry ice cream, but he loved a bowl of vanilla ice cream mounded with... You couldn't put too many strawberries on So top. I would be like Cut your dad. macerated with sugar, right? I would be like your dad. I don't, I don't like strawberry ice cream either, mm -hmm. but I do like vanilla with fresh macerated strawberry on top. Uh -huh. Oh, macerated strawberry, for some reason, come out so delicious every single time. But I don't, don't let them go too far. And if you add no. things like Grand Marnier or something, it, it does a weird thing to them. Put you it at the last minute. I know. I'm just saying an hour or two of sugar. You said overnight. I don't, I don't, I think that's too long for me. An hour or two on the sugar, I think is plenty. And it just creates a little bit of a syrup at the sure. bottom of the bowl. And Make and a pound cake and bada bing, bada boom. You got a wonderful dessert with uh -huh. some whipped cream. You Let's go back to one other things you guys both mentioned, which was cereal. I haven't had a bowl of cereal in... 30 years. That's too bad. Do you eat cereal every day, really? I eat uh, rolled oats cooked, you know. The really? Cold, yeah. yeah. I love it because it's, it's very filling. It holds me all the way to lunch, which I never used to eat breakfast so, so for many years. with a cup of coffee and at the door. But I started that maybe five years ago, and, mm. and my wife started me on it, of course. Of course. Thank God for my Pam, wife. Pam, do you eat cereal? Yes. Like, like Frosted Flake kind of cereal? Or like, um, oh. I... Seattle granola. Seattle uh, granola. That our, our own Chris Field produces, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and he does have one now, no brown sugar, because so many of them are too sweet, sweet or have so much coconut oil mm -hmm. that you right. really have to 
look closely at ingredients, but yeah. That's but you like know it. I'm addicted to lentils now for breakfast. Oh, that's oh. right. You love that uh, <laughs> Maya Kamal. Maya Kamal lentil thing. Lentil. <laughs> lentils for breakfast. I now. love my, my favorite hippie over here who opens a little foil packet of Maya Kamal lentils every morning. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> Uh, Coming up, we're going to honor Juneteenth. Uh, We recommend some traditional foods and some stories. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's the Hot Stove Society Show. We're getting ready for breakfast here. If you buy a ticket at hotstovesociety.com, you too can enjoy one of Annie and Brigitte's delicious breakfasts. Uh, just Annie. Uh, today's breakfast includes uh, a blueberry muffin, a Spanish tortilla, which is a potato and onion cake, uh, beautiful browned chorizo, and uh, some greens, some garlic, hot seared garlic ruby chard. So uh, that's what you're missing. And Pam's already put out Saba strawberries. Yeah, I mean, that and was... And now we're getting rosé. I mean, if you buy a ticket, 25 bucks, you too can join the party. We're going to invite Mike Tier to the mic because uh, we're going to talk about Junete- Juneteenth and the dinner that we had last night, uh, all of us shared. Yep. Uh, super fun. And, you know, Chef, we don't miss many opportunities to go out for dinner. No. And that's, this, uh, that's definitely, I'll miss the doctor before I miss the restaurant. Uh, we had a chance to sit with, uh, Pam, was it Williams? Was Gregory's last name Williams uh, last night? I think, yes. Yeah. yes. We had a chance to sit with a, a Seattle dude named Greg Williams last night who had some interesting observations on Juneteenth. The yeah. most charming man I have met in Very decades. Very kind voice, a voice you could listen oh, to for We've got to get hours. him on the yeah. radio. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've done some events with him. I had forgotten his name until when I saw him, I said, I know this guy. And I had done some King County uh, events with him uh, during COVID to kind of inspire workers and uh, that especially weren't getting to be in the office with each other. You know, there was some Zoom time. Is he leadership training? I am not exactly sure what his job description is, but uh, we can have him on at some point. But it was nice to have a person of color at the dinner last night when we were talking about all of the different things that we were, reasons why the meal was on the table. And so on June 19th, 1865, about two months after the Confederate General Robert E. Lee surrendered at Appomattox, Virginia, Gordon Granger, a Union general, arrived in Galveston, Texas, to inform enslaved African Americans of their freedom and that the Civil War had ended two and a half years later. Isn't that something? General Granger's announcement put into effect the Emancipation Proclamation, which had been issued early or nearly two and a half years earlier on January 1st, 1863, by President Abraham Lincoln. Early celebrations involved prayer, family gatherings, and today many celebrations take place among families in backyards. For some, celebrating means uh, drinking cold glasses of red drinks and feasting on watermelon or spicy red sausages, symbolizing the blood and resilience of the former slaves. For others, it means indulging in traditional black southern cuisine like fried chicken, collard greens and cornbread which is what we did last night yes. mm-hmm. uh, add in ribs add in halibut yeah <laughs> a strawberry pie wouldn't be out of place uh we, although last night we had pecan pie mm. and sweet potato pie 
Spicy hot links on the grill, most commonly made with coarse ground beef and artificially dyed red, are Juneteenth staple and a distinctive African-American contribution to barbecue. We all kind of sat around the table because I think all of us had done a little bit of research about what Juneteenth actually was right. and is, and also kind of looked at it. You had said, I think, uh, that your research said that it really came, the celebration and the honor came a lot after the George Floyd killing. Yes, right. and um, Biden making it an official federal holiday. Okay. So it was the coalescence of awareness right. in our country that right. this needed to be recognized celebrated and so many people it flew under the radar even though it's been a holiday for years right. but now we're recognizing the importance mm-hmm. so there is a lot going on in seattle the broadcast won't be until saturday and sunday but there are many places to look there's beautiful music and food festivals and there's a great on the actual holiday on monday there's a wonderful celebration about rap at um the Museum of Pop. Yeah, okay. we'll pop, yeah. Yeah, so there's, uh, check it out, participate in some way. Well, uh, I'm on a committee at my golf club uh, to try and uh, encourage more black uh, people to join our club, and Craig Dawson is one of our few black members. I've been working with him, and we worked on this menu, and, and I think I, when I let out the show, I, I had said we had tried to get a, a couple of uh, black chefs from around town, but everyone was either committed or didn't, didn't care right. to do it. So he asked me to write the menu. I said, "No way, dude! You are writing the menu. I'm gonna, I'm your, I'm no your support man here. Yeah, I'm your support man." So he wrote a menu that I thought of as being very like almost cliche black. Right? We talk right. when you're want to insult somebody. You you know they're fried chicken and watermelon. Blah blah blah. Well, I didn't realize that it's more than a cliche. Uh, it is a traditional menu for Juneteenth, yeah. uh, celebrating from that particular part of the country, the South. Mm-hmm. And it, so that was news to me also. And so we had just really a fun little array. Yeah, I think it was very well uh, diversified and very well showcased uh-huh. in terms of if you're not aware of, you know, what the celebration food should be. Right. I think they were showcasing really nicely last night because they had they went from the cornbread to the grits to the collard green to the black eyed peas to the beans to the uh, ribs chicken i mean baked the, fish is very traditional yeah, yeah. and then the, the pies you know the two pies uh-huh. pecan and and uh, sweet potato and and i thought that was very well rounded in terms of that the only thing that i was missing was the color of the you know the color the red of food, sausage the red and yeah the, you know there was not but the sauce for the ribs if you remember was actually a red sauce mm-hmm. kind of like well, a that's... vinegary north carolina kind of Kind of, that's what it reminded me of, yeah. a, of a rib sauce. It was fun to hear Greg's stories uh, last night of him growing up with a strong mother. And oddly enough, and I asked Mike Tier, your husband, to kind of sit here because you grew up in a kind of a half and half neighborhood in Rainier Valley. Yeah, it was a very diverse neighborhood. Very diverse. Yeah. The first thing when, I, when Craig wrote the menu for the dinner last night, I said, Harry's been making this on July 4th for as long as I can remember. Your dad had this kind of southern barbecue in the backyard of your house down off Rainier Avenue on McClellan there uh, forever. Yeah, he did it every 4th of July because it was my mom's birthday, but he was from uh, Alabama, so he came to it kind of naturally. It was uh-huh. food he grew up with, too, because it's, it's southern food. Right. Um, and it was a great event in the neighborhood. As you know, there would be 50 people crammed into our backyard and uh, he, would, he had built his own smoker in the backyard. 
he was serious about it. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of food, a lot of beer. Nothing like a lot free bar- <laughs> neighborhood barbecue, man. It's and like you want to attract your neighbors. Yeah. And your neighbor, tell me about your neighbor who you grew up with. Nancy Radcliffe, uh-huh. who is now 90 years old. Just like your mom. My mom was going to be 93. Yeah. Nancy uh, ruled the roost. Nancy was, uh, yeah, a wonderful neighbor. Uh-huh. Still friends with my mother. We were all a little scared of her because when she yelled at you, you could hear it from a block away. Uh-huh. <laughs> if we broke her roses while we were playing basketball in the, <laughs> in the driveway, oh, we were in trouble. But yeah. she had a heart of gold, too. Yeah. Her, her bark was worse than her bite. Mm-hmm. What was her heritage? Because she's one of the most beautiful women on she the planet. She was from Montana originally. I don't know the exact, but she had some native blood in her as well as African-American. Uh-huh. Yeah. She's, she had the most beautiful skin. She still does to this day yeah. at 90 years old. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Now, where I grew up in, in Newark, Delaware... Um, you had the black neighborhood or you had the white neighborhood. And I, my newspaper route kind of crossed over into the, But it was very segregated in its own little way, even oh. though it's, it's, it was like a smoking uh, a row on the airplane when you had smoking and non-smoking. They were right, right next to each other, but still segregated. Um, your neighborhood was much, much more integrated. Well, it wasn't always like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was redlining in Seattle for sure. sure. And when we moved into the neighborhood... In 62, that block, we had started farther south in federal housing projects, and stuff, so those were always diverse. But that block was all white in 62. Uh-huh. Something changed in the real estate world where the redlining went away. I, don't, I was too young to know. I was 10 years old. But it quickly became probably about 75% black. Uh-huh. And uh, there was literally, we watched, there was white flight. And we always joked... Uh, the neighborhood got better. Yeah. It was just people were more engaged. They talked yeah. to each other. Uh, we all played together. Yeah, it was just a great place to grow up. And when you say redlining, you're talking about jurisdictions on voting. You could, uh, you could only know. You could only buy houses oh, in certain neighborhoods. Oh, I see. Past the okay. canal. It was the canal. Yeah, there was a lot of redlining in Seattle. Uh-huh. But uh, in probably by 62, 63 or 64, the whole neighborhood flipped. Ah, interesting. Well, it was such a, a treat to kind of get to know Greg last night and hear some stories and yeah. and uh, kind of mash, uh, not expectations, but mash the things that you take for granted sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was lovely. Did you well, enjoy he, your... he brought up the point that another important element of Juneteenth now is um, recognition of our contributions to culture. It's, kind of, it's turned into a day of gratitude. Right. And um, thinking about our place in the world and, uh-huh. and how we can contribute. And yeah. he spoke to that quite eloquently, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. Right. And I'm yeah. super proud of my club, who's, <laughs> which is a very white club. Um, I'm super proud of them for taking this on. And uh, uh, we had a ball. So the chefs did a great job. Yeah. Mike, you're going to talk about rosé when we come back. There's, yes, I am. Uh, there's an excitement around that we were talking about. Rosé is the new Beaujolais Nouveau when it comes to waiting and expectations for the new crop. When we come back on Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Tom Douglas. Terry Rotterdam, the chef in the hat. 
And Mike Tears joining us from Pike and Western Wine Shop. Pam, you have a rosé class, a rosé yeah. or just wine? Rosé class. And um, Chef Bridget has developed an incredible menu for it because we are celebrating the inspiration of the Riviera. On the production Whoa. of rosé wine. Provençal rosé is yeah. on Bikinis yeah. and umbrellas is what I'm picturing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Uh, so it's going to be a fun class. <laughs> it's going to be a very fun class. But um, there's pisa la dare, a French tart of fagasse with caramelized onions, salmon riette, and uh, poisson de roche. And uh, a beautiful, uh, two beautiful sweets at the end. But more importantly, let's talk to Mike Tier about why we're so excited about rosés. Well, rosé is no longer a new thing because it's been around for quite a while, but it continues to evolve. And while it's true, it is a little bit like Nouveau people are always asking for the new vintage starting at about February around Uh here, and they're, they're never here quite that early. Well, the good news is this year they've arrived earlier than recent years because of COVID and yeah, shipping, shipping issues. Yeah. We were seeing them arriving in August. And the other good thing is summer's kind of already been here in Seattle. Oh, uh, it's we, not completely over. <laughs> no, I mean, but Don't it's, tell it's me it's done I'm leaving. It's arrived already. Oh, okay. It's arrived. Because as Pamela and I have commented, we, we live in North Beach in Ballard. It's a very cool neighborhood temperature-wise. It's cooler than right. downtown Ballard. And we have already sat outside on our front porch half a dozen times, which is unheard of mm-hmm. in, in North Beach. So the rosés are just really starting to stream in in a big way right now, which is, again, earlier than normal. So, Mike, when I first, uh, my, one of my first jobs, I've had a million first jobs, but I was stocking the wine shelves at State Line Liquors in Elkton, Maryland. And the only rosés I can remember were Tavel Rosé mm-hmm. and Rosé d'Anjou. Right, yeah. right. And Tavel Rosé, you'll still find around. We rarely see Rosé d'Anjou, which I would like because they're a little sweet. Mm-hmm. But talk about refreshing during the summer. Yeah. They're perfect. They're very but, refreshing. But people just freak out when you t- say the word sweetness, uh-huh. even though they would like it if that, they tasted it. Right. So we don't see them that often anymore. All right. So what do you got for us today? What are we tasting? Well, today in your glass, you have uh, one of my favorite rosés so far this year. Pamela and I drank this the other night with dinner. It's a Beckham uh, Pinot Noir Rosé from an Oregon winery named Beckham, name of the person that owns it. And the interesting thing about Beckham is he not only is a grape grower and a winemaker, but he's also a renowned amphora producer. So he makes a big the clay pots. old-fashioned clay pots uh-huh. that go back to Phoenician times to age wine in. So this rosé has seen time in amphora. And the wow. philosophy behind those is that they really allow the character of the fruit and the place to show through. It's a more neutral vessel. It's a little more oxygenated than stainless steel, but it doesn't give any oak flavor. Yeah, you see a that lot of the, people are using them these days. You see that in the Rhone Valley. Some people are bringing oh, it back. They're everywhere. It's, yeah. They're very, they're very current right, right now, but I think Oregon Pinot Noir Rosé can be delicious. It, it has a little more body, uh, kind of a nice, delicate fruit. And uh, as, as Pamela and I were talking the other night, it's, it's extremely food-friendly. Because people think of rosé, let's just drink a glass of rosé. And we drink rosé with dinner a lot because sometimes if you're having something that might be red, might be white, a good rosé right. is, is a great match. And we had this with lamb meatballs and couscous and a little yogurt sauce. It was perfect. Mic yeah. drop right there. Yeah. But, <laughs> could, you, could you back up a little bit to the quality of rosés? Um, increasing in the United States and 
why there's such a diversity because of the breadth of red wine grapes that rosés are made from? I think that's a really very good question. Fascinating. God, so, she knows what she's talking about. That's right. I should give a class Maybe on Maybe you should Rose. give a class. What Maybe day is that? What day is that? The 23rd? Okay. <laughs> Rosé can be made from any red grape. Some red grapes seem to do better than others, but it, it is a wine made from red fruit, not to be confused with orange wine, which is a wine of, with color made from white grapes and extended skin contact. Two different categories. Um, it's very in the Northwest. Uh, we have Pinot Noir out of Oregon. Um, one of our favorite Washington rosés at the shop is a new winery called Essia. Uh, a young woman named Tanya Bjornson, who's Icelandic American, makes a Sangiovese Cabernet Franc blend rosé. Yeah, really she's got a fascinating project, right going and there. snappy. And then our friends at Syncline, James and Poppy Manteau, oh, make yeah. a very classic. Provencal-style rosé out of Mouved and Carignan and Cinso. And so you can see Cabernet Franc rosés. You can see Gamay rosés. So it's made out of a lot of different grape varieties. And the good ones, the grape variety is reflected in the wine. It's not just a rosé. And I think it's important, too, to know that I think the best rosés, and it doesn't mean the most expensive, they're done in the vineyard first. The the Mm -hmm. grapes are grown to make rosé in mind, not we'll harvest red fruit and just make a rosé out of it because it, by then it might be too ripe. Or Correct. Too, so uh, it, it really is, I like to emphasize it's a, like all good wines, the kind of wines we sell at Pike and Western, it begins in the vineyard. And the winemaker has the ability of how to treat those grapes with the length of maceration time on the skins so that um, there's that full range of hues from the pale onion skin, yellow, to some of the Italian ones I've been seeing have really taken on a bit of more color. Yeah, more from the gray skin. More. Yeah. Right, and then um, some of the southern, like the bandol rosés, sure. rosés can be quite dark. And some are lighter. You're right, it's a decision by the winery. Right. Yeah, that's, all grape, that's all skin contact. It's skin, yeah. yeah, but it's, it's usually a relatively small amount of skin contact. Because if you look up skin contact wines, like what are not called orange wines, you'll see two weeks, 30 days. Rosés never get that kind of no, skin contact. It's never it might be six hours, eight yeah. hours. It might be We're 12 talking hours, yeah. Yeah, to, to get that the, color. Because you don't want to extract the tannins. The hue comes in very quickly, just a light hue, and that's what a lot of people are looking for in the roses. They're not looking for deep pink or whatever because it actually never really it goes pink but it also goes a different color after that so but i urge people not to be scared of a little bit of color because with that color comes a little more flavor too right. and especially in terms of matching up rosé with like that wonderful menu a little more flavor and texture well, stricture, be a good thing. come from the skin because yeah, it brings right. that tannin very you know the, the the skin actually has a lot of tannin so it brings a little composition to the wine that's just not just bland or, or uh, neutral. You know, it it's, brings it some character. And that's why some of them, as Tom said earlier in the show, some of them do benefit from aging because right. they do Absolutely. have Correct. the Absolutely. component acids yeah. to be able to develop. They're usually meant to be drunk. They call them fresh, you know, young and everything. But two, three years on the rosé is perfectly fine. I mean, it's not yeah. especially a well-structured rosé. I try to encourage customers uh, to save their, some of their favorite bottles for to, until at least fall or even winter, <laughs> right? Because no, because they really develop a lot in the bottle. It's amazing how much mm-hmm. they develop in that period of time. Up until well, at your Loire tasting that you did at Pike and Western a couple of weeks ago, 
there was a 2021 Sancerre Rosé, and it was drinking beautifully right now, Perfect. and it's yeah. a year older. So if you want to learn more about Rosé, I am doing a class on June 23rd here at Hot Stove Society, and uh, Chef Bridget has got a spectacular menu. Yeah, Go to the beautiful. website, sign up, and join us. All right. And Mike, if somebody's coming to your shop, uh, what are you going to sell them for Rosé? What's your top... Best value for the best wine. I have two, a couple favorites. That that SCI I was telling you about from Washington is twenty dollars. It's delicious. Love that. Yeah, nice. And then we are big fans of our good friends at GD Vira, famous Brolo oh, producer. I love that one. Make a rosé called Rosabella, uh-huh. and that's I think at about nineteen or twenty dollars as well. Nebbiolo and Barbera, two of our favorite grapes. Love that. All right, coming down. Up next, we're going to talk a little bit about the Backpack Brigade. We got another hour of deliciousness coming your way on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, ninety-seven three of nine. Is everybody ready now? Yeah! Okay. Here we go. Singing in the kitchen all together now. Singing in the kitchen. Everybody singing in the kitchen. Banging on pots and pans. Mama and daddy singing in the kitchen. Baby laughing. Singing in the kitchen. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show on Cairo. We're going to lead this off a little bit of sad news, sadly, because it seems to be coming fast and furious in our business. Uh, two things. One is the young lady who was uh, shot here at 4th and Lenora here this last week oh, was, was one of our fellow restaurateurs from right down a couple blocks away down Western Avenue. And so we're very sad to hear that. And then also... And the toll of life in restaurants, uh, Bill Reniger uh, passed away, I believe, of cancer, but I'm not sure, oh. from Duke's Restaurant, chef yeah. there. He oh, was a, yeah. a, a light in the room, the guy who was super fun, big smile for everyone, oh, wow. and so we're going to miss Bill in the, in the world of chefies. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's we all got to go, so that's, but we're sad to see him go so soon. We're going to welcome into our kitchen here today, Nichelle Hilton. Welcome to the mic. Uh, Thank she you. works for... Uh, she's the executive director of and the, founder and founder of the Backpack Brigade, yep. which uh, provides critically important weekend food for kids in 85 regional areas. 85 schools, 85 schools. four school districts, 3,500 children a week. Wow. <laughs> yes. Super exciting. Wow. So um, tell us how you started the Backpack Brigade. You know, later after the show, if you were here in the audience and wanted to stay, we're going to do a little quick challenge, yeah, right? Cooking out of the backpack. Yeah, a but, little chop. Um, tell us how the concept came up. And you are the mother of five, it sounds like. I and, am. Yeah. Grandmother of six. No way. Wow. Yes. <laughs> I have two in the oven. Oh, you do? Yeah. I hope we're done. Yeah. Um, I was working on a food bank, and I went to a training, and I found out about weekend hunger. I was like, this is not a thing in Seattle. We have a food bank. We have meal programs. And so I went next door to a school, and I said, is this real? And they said, yes. And I said, how can I help? Now that I know about it, I have to do something. And so I went to the food bank, and I grabbed enough food for eight backpacks. And so we found in doing this work, there's a thing called MKV, McKenney Vento Program. This is a federal program. MKV? Pro- yes, it stands for McKenney Vento. 
Vento. And so you'll hear the MKV analogy all over the place. And so this is the definition of of homelessness across America in schools with inadequate nighttime residents. So these kids can be in the street, a car, shelter, hotel, or doubled up. So those are our MKV kids. And Uh then we tackle our unaccompanied minors. So there's 700 in Seattle alone, the Seattle Public School District. And those are people that, uh, kids that don't have an adult in their life. They're they're unaccompanied minors from so like 12 and up. like a big brother, up. big sister kid? They're a foster kid? What do you... Uh, a lot of time we see them when immigrants have sent their family over before they come. And so they, they have the community taking care of them. Uh-huh. But there is not one person that is a, a guardian in their life. I see. And then we help the free and reduced lunch, um, the food insecure. Uh, so those are FRL. And that number in Seattle alone is over 25,000 kids. And, and a lot of those kids are taken care of through the f- school lunch program. Right, right, but where we target is those kids, those MKV, those unaccompanied minors, the FRL, they're sometimes only eating at school. I see. So that free breakfast, that free lunch. So we step in because what happens to that kid from Friday lunch to Monday breakfast? That is a long time to go with a big growl in a little belly. Yeah. So what we do is we pack weekend hunger bags. We send them through the schools home to the kids on Fridays in their backpacks. And there are six menus that have three breakfast, three lunch, three dinner, three snack. And we have six menus. We call them our ABC bags so that we're covering all the dietary, religious, and cultural needs of our students from A to Z. Uh-huh. Yeah. Where do you get the food? We purchase all of our food. We work with eight distributors, so we are buying at such a high level of bulk that we get really decreased prices. Uh-huh. What's it like? I mean, what does a kid tell you when they've are grown up with a certain religious menu in their life and that they can't? They don't. Do they just not eat if it's? Yeah. So what we found out when we started our ABC bag. So we have a kosher halal bag. We have a vegan bag, a gluten free, Hispanic, and Asian bags. And so when we launched that, we were like, okay, well your school gets a hundred bags. They'll probably still get a hundred bags, but now a mix of the different flavors. Mm-hmm. Boy, were we naive. Now they were getting a hundred of the standard bags. And now another 50 of this, another 20 of that, because exactly what you said, they couldn't eat the bags before. So they just didn't even take them? They just didn't even take them. So we, in one month, added 450 students. And we were like, yay, we're getting to these kids. And then we were like, oh, my God, they went this long without getting the bags and they needed them? Oh, sad. Yeah. But we've gone now, and we're about to add another program called Cold Bags, which we are sending home insulated bags that have a cheese stick, a gogurt, an apple, and a little itty-bitty chocolate milk. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. This is absolutely beautiful. Congratulations for taking the lead on that. Well, thank you. We have so much more work to do, and the only thing that stops us is funds, because we have the the volunteers, the infrastructure, the space, the knowledge. Um, and we are in four school districts in King County. There are 19. Mm-hmm. We are serving 3,500 kids in King County. There's 9,800. So there's a lot of more work to do. Yeah. So where, are you based in one place only or do you have... Currently, many? we are down in Sodo, uh-huh. right between uh, the stadiums and Krispy Kreme. And we do all our work out of there with 156 wonderful volunteers every week. Right. We have people that are driving their own car to pick up the bags and take them to the schools. We have wonderful family support workers in all our schools doing the distribution because every place it's a little different. The more bags they get, the more the open the, the atmosphere is. And some stand at, a, at the bus. You get a bag, you get a bag. The older we see them getting, 
we see like the middle school, the family support worker goes and puts the bag in their locker during the day. Nobody sees. Right. Zip up their backpack, none the wiser. And when people think, they get overwhelmed sometimes when they think about all the help that's needed in these nonprofits. Yes. And my suggestion to them is always think about the three T's, the time, talent, and treasure. And sometimes you don't have the treasure, but you got the time. Or you've got the talent, but not the... the Absolutely. You know, one of those three T's most likely will fit into your life. And you could use any variety of those. Absolutely. We need talented people all across our board. We're growing our staff. We need money all the time, that treasure. But we also need your time because we need volunteers that are the heart and soul of our program. They pack the bags. They deliver the bags. They help organize the bags. They inventory the bags. So they are really what makes the program run. I just email a lot. All right. <laughs> when we come back, I, I think we could we should go through w- what the week looks like in orchestrating this because I, I watched one of the videos with the volunteers talking, and it is an enormous lift to make this happen every week. Yes, and, and we could uh, not do it without the support. Yeah, of the so we uh, right. let's have this segment a shout out to the participatory volunteers. All right, that's on uh, Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show and the Backpack Brigade. 97.3 FM. Bagels and cream cheese, bagels and cream cheese. I like my bagels and cream cheese, bagels and cream cheese, bagels and cream cheese. I like my bagels and cream Okay, we're back in the kitchen here at the Hot Stove Society Show. We're talking with Michelle Hilton. Uh, she has brought her own brigade of board members and directors and planners and uh, from the Backpack Brigade. And we've learned that uh, this has been going on since 2014. And it's really intended to help solve the issue of what happens between Friday afternoon lunch and Monday morning breakfast uh, for children around our city that need food and sustenance over the weekend. Pam, you had some thoughts on this. Yes, uh, I I think bringing attention to this critical need uh, is paramount because but we think we're in this wonderful, prosperous region, yes. and it's all hunky dory, and that is not true. We've got such a diverse community with the different dietary needs, and that Backpack Brigade was able to respond with varied menus to service this rich community mm. is. A crazy accomplishment in and of itself. Yeah, we get that a lot. We get what we call the split personality schools, where when someone learns that we're in a school that might be in a more well-off area, they're like, well, why would you be there? Nobody there's in need. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, yeah, you're picturing the beautiful homes on the lake, but up the street there are two homeless shelters, Mm -hmm. and they're all going to the same school. And so it's really sometimes an eye-opener. Like, that problem isn't here. And I can tell you, it's in every single one of our schools. Yes, It may not be a lot. It may be one or two kids, but they're there. So you have a little challenge for Terry and I today. What's that all about? Ooh, we have a little chop-style competition going on. You will be grabbing one of the six menus unknown to you. Really? And then you will take Hiding it in those disguised bags. Oh, down here. Oh, yes. Okay, and you will take it and it added protein and a produce. You will be challenged to create the best meal. So to be clear, when you give a kid a backpack, it's ready to eat food. Yeah. It but is. Ours is a little different. Today. Yours is. You're going to be added a chicken breast and quote me, Pamela. I think we have a broccoli. Some veggies. Veggies. An assortment of veggie and herb. So Fun. they do not get that currently. <laughs> yeah, I hope it's beets. 
But what I like about the bag is that you've done the nutritional work to make sure that without supplemental ingredients, the kid is getting adequate nutrition on the weekend. Yes, we work hard with a nutritionist on our board to make sure that every bag is what we call above Thrive. Thrive is our goal, and then survive is the basic dietary intake for per day. And so we don't want to be hitting that survive. We want them to be thriving, so we want to be above that base number. And so we do, unfortunately, because it's shelf stable, have a little bit high on the sodium, but she does a fabulous job in balancing it all out. And this is, I do have to stress, different than like a food bank home delivery program. This is for a child to feed themselves. Because we do find in the MKV and FRL numbers, they're left alone a lot. And so that could be for really good reasons. Parents are working, education. But, you know, there's some bad reasons out there, too. And so sometimes the only food they have is what they can access themselves. You put instruction in the bag? Well, a lot of them is just microwaving. So it's like your cup of noodle, your mac and cheese cup. Your oatmeal. And even if you're going to a boys and girls club or something like that after school, they have microwaves. and Yes. uh, And in our city, there's an unwritten rule that kids can go to an AMPM or a 7-Eleven and use their hot water and microwave. unknown. Yeah. It is up to the owner, but it's pretty, pretty generous when they know the situation. And how do you deal with a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old meal and a... 17-year-old meal, because there's a different appetite level there. There is, and there's not a lot of variety because we are trying to hit above that base number for the DRI, and so we're above it so much that it can hit okay. both of it them. Yeah, both of them. Interesting. Do you work with Food Lifeline, too? We do. Uh, before the pandemic, I did a lot. Um, we had developed a purchase program for the backpack. Um, I had started a coalition for all the agencies that do this work in Seattle. It's called Food for School. There's eight of us. And the eight of us have accomplished all schools in Seattle. The, every single one is partnered. And so together, we were able to create an ordering system from Food Lifeline where they would buy at huge, huge discount and then we'd order from them during the pandemic that shifted and actually we grew so much that we're doing that for our sister agencies yeah, and they can buy to, from us something to bring to awareness is the amount of impact covid has it definitely did on hungry people i mean it is tremendously risen to a level that nobody has ever seen before overnight before the schools closed we were in 24 schools 925 bags when the schools closed, the city and the school district reached out to us to see if we could cover the 40 meal sites. With those eight agencies, we went from the 24 schools to 40 to 4,000. 4,000 bags a week, 40 school sites. Yeah. And yes. now we're at 3,500 without the eight other agencies. It's so amazing. So three, three wishes, what are they? A million what you, dollars. What do you need? Yeah. No, no, honestly. Uh, what do you need? A million dollars, uh, another warehouse, and... Um, well, actually, back up. My number one wish would be that we'd go out of business because there's no such thing as child yes. hunger. That is going to be my greatest day until I've accomplished all 327 school districts in Washington 
or I go out of business. Yeah. I don't know yeah. which day I'll be happier. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I understand that. So, yeah. you so, need a, you need a new warehouse, you need a million dollars and I need I need so much money that I can feed these kids at a level that it's never questioned. They're never hungry. They are food secure because they know exactly where their weekend meals are coming from. And that's not cheap. We feed um we did 98,000 bags this year and that's almost a million meals and our budget for food is under a million dollars so we are i mean that in this city that should be couch cushion change yeah no we have what did that article that just said we have more billionaires here than some of the other states yep, yep. and uh so i just need that person that person that just lifts the couch cushion and go oh here's a million dollars i'll give her or 10 people that have a hundred grand pe- yeah, i'll, t- yeah, I'll yeah. take it all you i'll know, take just, it all uh, that is again. actually The more people with a hundred grand, exactly. the better off you are because they can also help with their intelligence, their knowledge, and all that they can bring to the table, things that you Absolutely. Know. And it doesn't even need to be a hundred thousand. I'd think it, but you know what? You can feed a child for an entire school year for under $275. So let's just say five hundred. Yeah, think about it from that way. Yeah. yeah. So our bags, we, we create issues that are so big sometimes that people can't wrap their head around it. Yeah, right? so. it's overwhelming. Yeah. We have wonderful monthly memberships where they give twenty five dollars a month. But you know what? Those oh, people giving twenty five dollars a month bring in forty thousand dollars a year. And our bags, we have such great prices. Our average bag is seven dollars for wow. three breakfast, three lunch, three dinner, three snack. And right now we got four snacks. We're fans. So how, do you, how, do you, how do you sign up for a membership? Where do you go? Uh, you go to our website, backpackbrigade.org. You say donate now, and you can sign up for a one-time or a reoccurring monthly member. And yeah. how do you get a bag? A bag comes to the schools. Through the schools. Okay. So you see your family you support worker. Yeah. 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 So the family support worker has that MK li- MKV list. They know who is food insecure, and they make sure they get a bag. Perfect. Thank you Perfect. so much. Oh, thank you guys. Thank you for It's any kind of awareness. Heartwarming and heartbreaking all at the same yeah, time. Exactly. <laughs> I, I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our sure guest has do. been Michelle Hilton. Uh, thank you for sharing your love and passion for our, our children. Thank yes. you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. When we come back, we're going to talk with Anne Van Lanesiel uh, about her new book, Savor Your Chocolate. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show 97. It's the Hot Stove Show on Cairo. Chef in the Chapeau. Oui, Monsieur Douglas. Uh, and then, of course, it's Tom Douglas, our producer, Pam Hinckley. Hello, thanks hello. Are, thanks for hopping around here today. If you ever want to come join us, just go to hotstovesociety.com and get a ticket, and you, know, you can enjoy breakfast and a show. And some rosé we had this morning. Mm-hmm. And some strawberries. Oh, my. And now we're going to have a little chocolate. Uh, a new book called, well, it's fairly new, You're Out, right? Yes. Savor Your Chocolate by Anne Van Lainseal. And uh, I don't know why I can't get that right. Sorry, okay. Anne. You just happened to be a, an audience member today, and we loved your book. And so we thought maybe you could share some light on the, how chocolate is produced, why, where it's produced, why we should be buying certain types of chocolate and not others, 
why don't you start from the beginning for, about you and, and your, your process? Well, 10 years ago, I bought a farm and noticed that the crop I enjoyed the most was the chocolate. It's a fascinating plant. Uh, jump, you bought a farm on the Big Island. On the Big Island yeah. of Hawaii, That yes. makes a big difference here. Yes. Yeah. American <laughs> grown. You can't be doing this in California. True, true. Yeah. The cacao orchard had been grossly neglected. We rehabilitated it. And in 2019, when the Gold Grower of Distinction Award for the Pacific region, um, I went to Paris and picked up the award and had nice. a great time and started diving into the, the chemical base of chocolate and cacao and really wanted to move toward using it as a sp- seasoning in savory applications. So not so much a sweet chocolate bar. You know, there's a lot on sweet (laughs) chocolate. And so I I found this area very intriguing, and I love vegetables, and cacao chocolate pairs very well with vegetables. So I've written a book that kind of teaches people the, the recipes aren't extraordinary, but what is is opening people's minds to discovering how chocolate can pair with everyday recipes People's favorite recipes probably have room to use either nibs, cocoa powder, or unsweetened chocolate to expand the flavor base of an everyday recipe. And it's good for you, too, right? Fantastic. Especially when you don't pair it with sugar. Right. When you don't put sugar in it, it's a beautiful, beautiful fruit. I mean, is it a fruit? It is a fruit. It's a a a berry. And you um, actually actualize a fuller extent. There's discussion between 800 and 1200 flavor and aroma compounds in chocolate. Mm. One of the most favorite, uh, the most complex ingredients in food. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is really delicious to me. I, I love it. I just actually did testing on Kauai where my son is managing a farm there, a cocoa farm. And uh, it is pretty impressive to see the different flavor you actually, the accentuation of flavor you get from unsweetened chocolate, like real cocoa, not sweetened yet. Yes. It's, it's amazing to me. It's a great component to add. And I can totally see how in savory it would work tremendously. Well, as a chef, that's correct. Yeah. And the beauty of you, what you've just opened up is that the farmer is being left out of the global dialogue mm-hmm. regarding chocolate. Uh, the bean-to-bar movement is very disturbing to someone who grows chocolate mm-hmm. because the critical first step is fermentation the of the beans. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that always happens on the, on the farm, farm because it's so perishable. Mm-hmm. And when you cut that step out, you wind up with less than ideal flavor compounds in the bean. As the artisanal chocolate movement sweeps the globe, we need to bring the farmer back into the dialogue. Uh Yeah, because you could compare the farmers to a winemaker. You know, if you don't have the winemaker to put the wine in the bottle, what's the bottle of wine? Or the grapes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're right. The, The fermentation is done on the farm and then the dry and then send it to the factory to get made into chocolate. Now, I mean, that, you're right. That first step is a very important step. Thank you for acknowledging. And similar to wine, chocolate is very uh, terroir-oriented. Yes. And so the beauty of growing chocolate in Hawaii is it's the furthest north latitude where you can commercially grow right. cacao. And so the beans retain more cocoa butter. 
mm-hmm. uh, than uh, other regions of the world, which is why the cacao that's grown in Hawaii is exceptional in retaining all of the flavors because fat stores flavor. That's why I'm so tasty. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you also say that we can make a choice as a consumer of where to buy our chocolate from. And you and I were discussing a little bit about the price of Hawaii. But when you think about the fact that uh, what the wages are being paid in Hawaii and all that kind of stuff compared to some other area, other areas of the world. So how do we make that choice? What do we look for on a package or... I really encourage people that want just a little awareness that 70% of the chocolate globally comes out of Africa, and there are grave concerns about the conduct of farmers in that region. Um, Americans' billion-dollar chocolate industry should lean into South America, Central America, and the little bit that comes out of the United States from the Hawaiian Islands. Uh As just a more human choice is that what you're saying I, because you would think you don't want to take anything away from africa because no. we have this one big vision of africa that's just not real right because there's a lot of prosperity there's a lot of horrific situations so africa is a big there's a lot of prosperity and disparity just like here yeah just like here yeah yes and again my my mission to bring the farmer back into the equation of all levels of chocolate includes addressing some of the concerns in Africa that are similar to the diamond industry right. in chocolate. Mm-hmm. Um, but also focusing on 89% of the chocolate that's grown in the, the world is on small farms, less than five hectares. So we need to look at small farmers and how they're being compensated. Um, right now, the processors in industrialized countries are making all the profit. Right, right. They're paying pennies to farmers to get the quality of beans um, and then actualizing all of the profitability. I think the same history went with coffee beans. Uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, uh, one of the big, I think, I think to Starbucks credit, they were one of, you know, the strong pilots of wanted to really support their farmers and they really helped grow that that momentum of, you know, rising the farmer to a better level than they were. Yes. You know, and, and protecting them and, and the land as well, so. And so it's my sincerest hope that we can shorthand right. the pathway for artisanal chocolate um, to that acknowledgement and paying for the recognition of the contribution farmers make. Right. Let's jump right back to your book for a minute, Savor Your Chocolate. It's got some <laughs> delicious looking recipes. Why, thank uh, you. And obviously uh, committed to the savory side of the menu rather than just desserts. I'm looking at one right now, pork tenderloin with carrot barbecue sauce. Seems so appropriate for this time of year. Mm-hmm. I can just personally imagine a smoky pork tenderloin. Uh, tell me about how you made your savory carrot barbecue. Well, I layer. The pork loin has a rub that includes cocoa powder or uh-huh. ground cacao nibs. And then the uh, I like using carrot instead of tomato for the base of the sauce. For sweetness or for why? Uh, body. Just like it. The, body. the, the volume of mm-hmm. the sauce. Mm-hmm. And not as acidic. There are a lot of people that can't tolerate tomatoes. So altering, uh, offering an alternative. Mm-hmm. During the winter and fall, I'll use squash or pumpkin for the base of a sauce. Um, uh, so just, again, and the flavonoids uh, that pair so beautifully with a lot of the components in chocolate uh, uh, really encourage the full depth and breadth of the flavor in chocolate that is uh, tamped down by sugar applications. And you also have a salmon with ginger soy. Why, of course. 
course. <laughs> I'm a Northwest girl. Of course. <laughs> But that sounds good. Well, you, you, just, put, go you put coconut in the, in the soy sauce? Yes, ginger mm. and chocolate are beautiful bedfellows. Sure. Uh, other places in the book that kind of makes you do a double take when you think about chocolate, mussels and chorizo. Mm-hmm. Tell us ah. about that. Well, I'm Belgian, so partials to moules And it led to the experimentation. You know, I have found very few things that don't go well with chocolate. So it's easy to talk about the depth and breadth of try it, experiment. Right. I offer some tables and charts on vegetables that I discovered really pair well with chocolate. Uh-huh. So people can experiment in their home kitchens as long as they have cacao nibs, cocoa powder, unsweetened chocolate. Because people always think chocolate is a chocolate bar. Right. They don't realize that it's such a savory product before it becomes a chocolate bar. And it matches well with spices. Oh, you know, very well with spices. Curry, uh, harissa, you know, things like yeah. this. Mm-hmm. It marries really well with that. So it's a very, very versatile. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so proud of your work because uh, I was one of the founding members of Theo Chocolate and we, you know, it was our mission to talk about cacao as an agricultural product and to distance it from candy because so much of the world's crop is being wasted on those super sweet, highly processed candy bars, whereas the, the bean has so much nutritional value and excitement. And I think the savory applications are more interesting. Yeah. And if you have nibs in your cupboard, it's such a nice way to add crunch and content. So you're on to something. Well, I appreciate that. (laughs) And, and, uh, you know, the good news for you, Anne, is that you're going to get to stay with us. And Chef Terry and I are going to crush you oh. like a, <laughs> like a, like a cocoa nib in our Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Challenge. Can't wait. Yeah. Thank you for being You know what usually happens when I say I that. I doubt that, but yeah. that's okay. Don't be scared. Ah. We'll be right back on Cairo Radio. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Waiting for the dinner bell to do the bell thing. Dinner bell, dinner bell ring. But would you like the sauce in the salad or the sauce on the side? The sauce in the salad or the sauce on the side? The sauce in the salad or... It's time for our very last segment on the Hot Stove Society show. It's Food for Thought Tasty Trivia. Brought to you by uh, my very own Rub With Love Spice Rub line. The taco spice is what we had this morning on our mm. ruby chart. It's citrusy and got a little bit of mild pepper. Uh, tomorrow, I'm using the All-Star Rub, which is our own pop-up on a burger pop-up at the... Ballard Warehouse, 52nd and 14th Northwest. If you want to come by and I'll cook you a burger. Uh, you can mix and match all sorts of things uh, with your proteins and veggies. Well beyond the recipes on each label. And, of course, I'll be at uh, the Made in Washington store in the Pike Place Market on Saturday uh, from uh, 11.30 to 2.30 uh, doing all sorts of things down there. They're having a big, we are the manufacturer of the month. Or supply, maker of the month. Maker of the month. Carol, our... Carol Bausch, our Rub with Love manager, will be at Bell Square in that same time frame. So we're going to, both sides of the lake, we got covered. A duel. All right, Pam, how do we play the game? And uh, we already know who the winner's going to be. <laughs> yes, we do. Uh, each of the contestants is going to get five questions. And Carol Bausch, our uh, Rub with Love manager, wrote the questions today. And it's all about <laughs> strawberries. What so does Carol celebrating. know about strawberries? You know, she did a lot of research. I guess. To help us. Uh, Chef in the Hat goes first, 
And then we'll move to our cacao producer as our second contestant, ending up with Tom. And she gets uh, her choice of three rubs from our uh, gift shop. Why, thank you. I'll throw some cocoa powder in there. There you go. (laughs) Terry? I'm ready. Go ahead. What U.S. state do you think grows the most strawberries, and who do you think is second? California is first. Correct. Want to give a guess to second? Also warm. Washington. No. <laughs> I'm just chauvinist. You already uh, got that one right, but no, Florida. California, and I think the second one would be Florida. Yeah. With the <clears> balance <throat> from Oregon, New York, and Washington. Yep. California produces an amazing 1 billion pounds of strawberries each year. If all the strawberries produced in California in one year were laid berry to berry, they would circle the earth 15 times. Wow. <laughs> My friend Charlie at Charlie's Produce said that uh, on one shipment the last week, he sent out 30,000 flats of yeah. strawberries to Walmart wow. stores. Wow. Amazing. Number two, what country do you think grows the most strawberries? The U.S. It's China. Uh, the I would annual have never production that. is <laughs> 8.9 million tons, uh, with the 38% of the total from United States and Egypt as other significant producers. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Number three, are strawberry plants annuals or perennials? They're annual. Perennials, when cared for properly, they will keep producing for up to five years. That's what I meant to say. That's my <laughs> perennials. I, when I said annual, I meant they come back every year. Because yeah. <laughs> my strawberries have never died. Exactly. They keep coming back. Perennial. They're like a weed. So perennial you... was the word, but annual is what I meant. <laughs> Thank you. Take a stab at the largest uh, strawberry ever grown. Do you think it was 5 ounces, 10 ounces, or 20 ounces? Oh, 20. It was 10 ounces. Oh, okay. And was 7 inches long with a circumference of over 13 inches. Now, if you see a strawberry like this in an alley on Monday morning, <laughs> you're still running on Friday night. Okay, what, would you, what would you call the fear of strawberries? Uh, I would call it... Uh, <sighs> Think of maybe the French dame with phobia at the end. Hang on, I'm going to tell Frambos. you this. Frandophobia. Yeah, it's something, fo- it's something phobia. Uh, yep. and it has You're to getting be, there. It has to be from the strawberry family, and that would be... Frorobia. Frorophobia. Frogiophobia. Yes, that one. That one. How did you do today? Uh, very good. I did one out of five. <laughs> <laughs> and you're up. I'm ready. Um, for the We're sweet, afraid of that. <laughs> for the sweetest strawberry, do you want early in the season or end of the season? End. The earlier yep. have the oh, highest sugar sugars. content. Um, multiple choice. How many um, approximately varieties of strawberry are there? Do you think it uh, distinct species? 50, 103, or 212? 103. Correct. 103 distinct uh, subspecies of strawberries. Per serving, what has more vitamin C, a strawberry or an orange? A strawberry. A strawberry is correct. I said that earlier in the show. That's what you said. (laughs) And she was listening. She was paying attention. Uh, What colors do strawberries come in? Green, red, and yellow or pink? Yes. Very well done. Thank you. Number five, what are the ideal growing conditions for strawberries? I would imagine sandier soil and sunshine. 
Yes, Sandy Loam and uh, Rich, in, but also Rich in Organic Matter. Nice show. Oh. <laughs> might, she might be a farmer. <laughs> Tom Douglas? What did she get? Four out of five? Yeah. Wow. Four out of five. I'm All so right. sick of our guests you, taking you our toasted. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe we shouldn't announce it so, like, you're going to grind her? I'm like, no. So it's not going to happen. That's what we get for having you. You have to go in with confidence. You yes, riled up my competitive spirit. You have yeah. to go on the uh, underground confidence. Yeah. Uh, number five. I mean, number one for you, Tom. What is in a strawberry daiquiri? Uh, rum, ice, lime juice, and strawberries. Very nice. True or false? Strawberries are toxic for dogs and cats. Absolutely true. It is. <laughs> it is false. In fact, there is an enzyme in strawberries that can whiten their teeth. Oh. <laughs> cool. Um, I hate kissing a dog with yellow teeth. True or false? Strawberry jam is the number one selling. Absolutely jam. true. It is true. And what do you think uh, number two is? Orange. Grape. Orange. Grape. Number two, jam. Yeah, flavor. Uh, you already got that one right, but... I'll go with grape. It is grape. That's too bad. True or it, false? You know, Welch's has the orch- or the vineyard, the grape vineyard, across the water from us in Prosper. Oh, oh that's who buys all... Yeah. Mm, beautiful. Pros- uh, true or false, strawberry leaves are poisonous. Absolutely true. <laughs> it is false. According to the <laughs> University of Maryland, the- strawberry leaves are high in vitamin C, <laughs> calcium, and contain tannins, which helps digestion, nausea, and stomach cramps. Yeah, but you always have strawberries with rhubarb, and rhubarb <laughs> leaves are poisonous, so when you put the two together, false logic. they kill you. Number five, is strawberry blonde a redhead or a blonde? <laughs> a strawberry blonde is a blonde. The strawberry blonde is the lightest shade of redhead. Yeah. How do you do? Uh, so far, he did just like me. No, he, he, no, two. Two out of five. Um, well, congratulations, congratulations. Anne. You yes. get to uh, go to the gift shop and pick out three rubs. Yeah. And check out Anne's book, Savor Your Chocolate. Uh, when you get time, uh, Amazon and every place else probably, right? So uh, if you want to be part of the show, you can join the community on YouTube Live at Tom Douglas and Co., also, remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley. Our technical director is Sean McFadden. And our talented Cairo editor is Sean, don't ever call me Del Torre. Thanks for listening and have a happy Juneteenth celebration weekend. Yummy, 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 yummy. Turkey burgers, they taste really good. They like hamburgers, except they're made of turkey. It's just like a hamburger Except people say that it's healthier To go and eat a turkey burger Instead of a hamburger